0: Hello, this is David Beeson, welcoming you to Chapter 77 of A History of England. We're going to take a look together this week at what was a weird time for Britain, centred around the year 1797. We saw last time that the year ended badly for the country. The first coalition against France finally fell apart with the departure of Austria, leaving only Britain still fighting. The stock market fell drastically after French troops landed in Wales, as we saw last time, and the slide wasn't prevented, even though the invasion itself was crushed quickly. There was a run on the banks and reserves of gold, at a time when gold was used for most transactions, fell to dangerously low levels. That was all a bit paradoxical. You may remember that Pitt came to office in a very difficult, roundabout way, involving a lot of backstairs manoeuvres with the king. He'd had to endure months of governing with only minority support in the House of Commons, losing vote after vote, before he could hold the general election that delivered him a majority. But, at that time, everything had gone well with the economy, and he could bask in the glow of success. Since then, he'd built himself a comfortable majority and had then added to it. What politician, after all, is ever so satisfied with his grip on power that he doesn't want to secure it further? He'd attracted into his government some of the very Whigs he'd cheated of office back in the early days by those clever manoeuvres. Some of the more moderate Whigs had begun to lose patience with Charles James Fox, still leader of the Whigs in the opposition, who remained as keen as ever on the French Revolution and therefore firmly opposed to the war. Those weren't positions the moderates were comfortable with. Eventually they decided they'd rather forgive Pitt for his skullduggery towards them a decade earlier and join him. Of course, they got some nice ministerial positions out of the move, making it all the more attractive to them. That split the remaining Whigs, reducing the faction led by Fox to a powerless rump, and gave Pitt a crushing majority in Parliament. So his hold on power had never been so secure. And yet now he faced terrible economic problems. They were made worse by bad harvests, which led to the price of wheat rocketing up by 75%. The war also damaged exports, with a collapse, in particular, in the textile industry and rising unemployment. In the summer of 1795, a mob invaded Downing Street and broke windows in Pitt's residence at number 10. At protest meetings, the cry went up, Peace! Bread. No Pitt. No George. In October of the same year, the King travelled in the state coach to Parliament to deliver the King's speech. Then, as now, when it's a Queen's speech, this was written by government and outlined the policies it intended to pursue in the next parliamentary session. One of its provisions was to explore whether peace might be negotiated with France. And indeed, the mob that attacked the King's coach was crying... No wall, no famine. One of the windows was broken with a circular hole, which may or may not have been caused by a bullet. The king certainly thought it was, leading him to announce on his arrival at Parliament, My lords, I have been shot at. On the way back from Parliament, he had to abandon the state coach, which another mob tore to pieces. The private coach he took instead was also attacked, and he had to be rescued by horse guards. At one point, he claimed, members of the mob had tried to drag him out. This was all a lot too reminiscent of the French Revolution. That kind of behaviour became the pretext for another round of repression. Meetings of more than 50 people were banned. Sedition was redefined to include any call for changes to the government or the monarchy, except in Parliament. Protests or pamphlets outside Parliament were effectively forbidden. There was even worse trouble in Ireland. We know that Pitt's attempt to improve the economic position of the Irish had been wrecked by the intransigence of English business that didn't want to see competition from across the Irish Sea. Another attempt at Catholic emancipation to allow the majority of the Irish population at least to vote and run for office was defeated. As well as Catholic discontent, there were growing sectarian tensions, as Protestants organised in orange lodges to protect their power and keep the Catholics subjected. London also feared that France might land troops in Ireland to support and encourage rebellion, opening a backdoor to Britain. Pitt sent troops in to put the rebellion down with violence, culminating in the death of its leader Edward Fitzgerald. Ironically, a cousin of Charles James Fox's. When the French also failed to arrive, Britain once more came out on top. The Orange Lodges had a field day of reprisals. The underlying problems, however, continued to fester, and Pitt's search for a solution would go on, as we shall see later. It occurs to me that you may feel I've been remiss in only talking about problems and not paying enough attention to the one area of the war where things had gone well for Britain. That was at sea. It started with a victory for Richard Howe, Lord Howe, another throwback to the War of American Independence. He'd commanded British naval forces in North America. He was also the brother of the less than impressive general there, William Howe, in what came to be known in Britain, though unsurprisingly not in France, as the glorious 1st of June, Admiral Howe engaged a French fleet in 1794 off the Cape in northwestern France called Ushant in English. The British failed in their primary aim of preventing an American grain convoy reaching France, allowing the French to regard the outcomes a victory. On the other hand, the French had engaged 26 ships of the line, the biggest and most powerful naval vessels of the time. They lost seven of them, forcing them to return to port and allowing Britain to impose a naval blockade that would last for the rest of the war. Then, in February 1797, so in the weird year we're focusing on in this episode, the Spanish, who'd recently switched sides in the war, put to sea with a fleet including 25 ships of the line. The fear was that they might make a junction with the French. But Admiral John Jervis, with 10 ships of the line, supported by an up-and-coming commodore called Horatio Nelson, with another five, met the Spanish at the Battle of Cape St Vincent and defeated them comprehensively. At one point, Nelson led men from his own badly damaged ship onto the deck of a Spanish one, capturing it, and from there onto a second ship, which they captured too. The move came to be known, back in Britain, as Nelson's patent bridge for boarding enemy vessels. Like the French fleet after the glorious 1st of June, the Spanish had been badly mauled and crawled back to port with their morale broken. The two fleets could not now join up and take control of the channel as they had during the War of American Independence. The problem for both the French and the Spanish was that they had simply not reached the same level of training and discipline as the British, who had been working hard and investing heavily in overcoming the problems the American War of Independence had shown up. Now, with the British blockade in place enemy navies would never get the chance to provide crews with the training at sea that they needed. That would consolidate and extend the British advantage. Now, though, that very navy on which Britain relied so heavily had a particularly nasty surprise in store for Pitts. The Royal Navy may have been an effective fighting force, but it wasn't a nice place to be, especially if you weren't an officer. Pay had been increased for a century, and it was a lot lower than in the merchant navy. Besides, it was paid only erratically. Food and living conditions aboard ships were lousy, and leave ashore was granted very meanly for fear of desertion. Discipline was harsh to the point of barbaric. Sailors could be flogged with a cat-o'-nine-tails, a whip that ended with nine lengths of knotted cord designed to lacerate skin and flesh. To receive a dozen or two dozen strokes on a bare back was horrifically painful, but for offences the Navy regarded as serious, the sentence could be 500 or a 1,000 strokes, which was, in effect, a condemnation to death by torture. The actual death penalty by hanging was also available as a punishment. On the 16th of April 1797, the sailors of the fleet at anchor in Spithead, the assembly point for ships from the great military port of Portsmouth, refused the order to put to sea. It was the start of the event that has come down to us in the annals of Royal Navy history as the Spithead Mutiny. In many ways, it was more like what in modern times we would call a strike. The men said they would immediately put to sea if the French did, they behaved well and, though some officers were confined on board, none was attacked. The government decided that the best policy was to give way on the demands for better pay, better medical care, better rations and more leave, and it looked as though all was well. But then the government took its eye off the ball. Two weeks later, it had done nothing to implement the agreement. The men mutinied again and this time were joined by the fleet at the Knorr in the Thames Estuary. Here the mutiny took a more political turn, with the radicals seizing the leadership. Admiral Howe, still the men's favourite commander, hurried to Portsmouth and was able to quieten things there with promises that there would be no further delay in implementing the new conditions, which this time the government ensured there wasn't. The Knorr took longer but sailors began to drift away from the mutiny as its leaders tried to push it in a more political direction. In the end, the authorities only had to put down a small number of holdouts, hanging their leaders. Order had been restored in the Royal Navy. Indeed, soon after, when the Dutch fleet put to sea to attack Britain, it was ships manned by former mutineers that inflicted a devastating defeat on it at what came to be known as the Battle of Camperdown. Now, all three of the French, Spanish, and Dutch fleets, the only ones capable of rivalling Britain at sea, had been knocked out. Time for a small ironic digression. The commander of the Dutch fleet was one Jan Willem de Winter. You may remember that some years previously the pro French Patriot Party had attempted to seize power in Holland only to be crushed by invading Prussian troops. De Winter, then a young naval officer, had been with the Patriots and fled to exile in France, where he served in the army. He rose to the rank of Brigadier and, indeed, commanded the detachment of French cavalry that, you'll recall, pulled off the staggering feat of forcing the surrender of some Dutch ships near the town of Den Helder. The ships had been icebound, making the job a little easier, and the surrender had been negotiated rather than fought for, but it was still a remarkable event in the history of naval warfare. Now, sadly, de Winter, who'd done so well at Den Helder, and who had returned to the Navy, rising to the rank of commander of the Dutch fleet, had to put up with a stinging defeat at Camperdown. A sad sequel to a glorious episode. The defeats of the French, Spanish and Dutch fleets meant that while French forces were running rampant across Europe on land, as soon as they ventured out into the salt water far enough to wet their saddle girths, they reached the end of their power. Beyond that, the Royal Navy ensured that Britain ruled supreme, though it in turn could do nothing on land. An elephant and a whale were contemplating a long, costly stalemate with no end in sight. In any case, what with unrest, economic troubles and mutinies in the navy, Britain had suffered a near escape and diced with disaster before he could restore anything like normality. Besides, many of the problems remained to be solved. Pitt still had plenty of challenges to rise to. You'll have spotted that we haven't yet seen him fixing the economy. And what about the war? Could he find a way to an acceptable peace by negotiation? Or could he put a force together capable of imposing one by military means? We'll come back to all that next time, when we'll also talk about the other rather peculiar conflict he had to deal with at this time, the one inside him that would mould his private life. I hope that's intriguing enough to tempt you back for the next episode. Thanks for listening to this one.